everybody, Stuart Gandalf here. Welcome to another one of our podcasts. Today, I'm interviewing yet another expert in the healthcare field. And today, my guest is John Marchica. And John is the CEO and founder of Darwin Research. Today, we're going to be talking about some pretty intriguing research he and his associates and firm have recently complete, or completed. Welcome, John. Well, thanks for having me, Stuart. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. It's great. And some of you may remember that actually I was a guest on John's podcast a while back. So today um, I'm uh, inviting him to be on mine. And so I think we've got a lot to talk about today. As a lot of our long-term readers and listeners will know, I love data. I love being able to not just, you know, opine on things. I like to have data to back it up. There was an old joke I heard uh, when I was on the Google campus at one point where they said, you know, on God we trust, everyone else bring data. And so I think, you know, that's a pretty good philosophy to look at. And so um, John and his firm are in a field related to what we do with our agency most of the time. And I think there's some interesting insights that will be gained and uh, apply to our audience, which includes pharma, device, hospitals, multi-location practices, and so forth. John, uh, do me a little bit uh, or a favor and tell us a little about your firm, Darwin Research, and then, you know, about the study that we're about to talk about. Sure. So my firm... Uh, Darwin Research Group. We focus on studying integrated health systems and healthcare delivery and and also value-based care models. Um, So we do a deep dive. We profile something in the order of 300 plus systems across the country. Um, And then when COVID hit, it was interesting, Stuart. First I thought our business wasn't going to be affected at all. And then we had two clients cancel projects <laughs> sometime around, I guess it was uh, late March, early April. And then I started to worry a little bit and I thought, well, wait a minute, there might be an opportunity here for us to do our own study on kind of tracking COVID and effects on care delivery and a whole bunch of things. And so last May, we went out with our first phase of this research. And we have a kind of a quantitative section where we go out with an online survey to about 150 people. These are health, health system executives. And then also doing uh, individual interviews, 20 to 30. Uh, and we originally intended on doing this on a quarterly basis. The, the issue with that was, if you remember, November, December timeframe, COVID was raging across the country. So we, we put it off until April. Uh, for our, our third phase of the study. And um, yeah, so that's what I'm here to talk about to kind of run through some of the top line results. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's been interesting. It's, we've, been had, we've had the unique ability to track what's been happening really in the words of, what, of people's individual experiences with COVID-19 and how their health systems and physician groups have been affected. Um, but then also at the same time, to your point about data, it's not just what we learn from conversations, it's quantitatively assessing uh, the impact with our online survey. Great, great. So in going through and we prepared about or prepared for our discussion today, one of the things we talked about, and my biggest interest was uh, some of the top takeaways from your research. and. The, uh, I'm just going to hit you with some of these and we can talk and expand upon some of the big takeaways from the research to get us started here. Uh, one of the comments you said 
as we uh, prepared was, well, health systems are now open for business and focused on growth. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's, as we've been tracking this, there's been sort of fits and starts. And one of the things that we measure is, you know, where a health system is, are they completely open, kind of pre-COVID levels? Are some service lines opening? Um, are, they, are they barely open? And for the first time, uh, we found the vast majority of people saying that they've kind of returned to pre-COVID levels, and they're really focused on growth. And they're doing that by looking at increasing their existing offerings, but also um, acquiring other sites, acquiring practices. So they're, they're kind of coming out of the fog and after having their financials hammered for a year and saying, oh, this is, there's some opportunities here for us to grow. Um, the other thing that I would say aligned with that is expanding uh, home health services, virtual visits, keep, keeping those strong, um, incre um, adding urgent care centers, ambulatory surgery centers. So really just a, a sense of uh, how, do we, how do we grow our way out of this mess? And when you found, or uh, from your research, and I know you did quantitative and qualitative, uh, the, in your study it shows that about 95% of the respondents said that they uh, most service lines and uh, locations are open and have returned to pre-COVID levels of activity. So talking about service lines for a moment, what are the priorities there? I mean, service lines are always important for health systems, but what are some of the key service lines that you find them focusing on? And are there any other insights regarding growing service lines? Well, it's kind of the usual suspects, so cardiovascular, um, orthopedics. The one thing that jumped out uh, that, that kind of surprised us. And unfortunately, in fact, we can sort of opine on, on why. Unfortunately, this is one of those things that came through the online survey, so we didn't have an opportunity to follow up. But that is really a, an emerging focus on primary care, that there's the really focusing on uh, primary care as a service line. A lot of health systems in the past have, you know, it's kind of been, well, maybe it's a way for us to increase our referral base or for academic medical centers, maybe it's a way to, you know, get people into trials. But I don't know, is that something that, that you're seeing among your clients that, that, that really primary care is, is, uh, is booming? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, it's funny. I would say that, and you and I have talked about this in the past in various, you know, venues. The, from my standpoint, the hospitals, health systems are thinking more strategically constantly, right? So... Um, and the, if you know a hospital and health system, you know a hospital or health system. So, you know, some are, you know, focused on, you know, population health and managing large, you know, groups of patients. Others are still largely fee-for-service. And, you know, the, the model depends on whether they've got a staff model or whether they're working with, you know, admitting uh, doctors or doctors of privileges. It varies a lot. But primary care, you know, I think what we see, John, and I'd love to see your input on this too, one thing is, of course, having the referral, which is the obvious thing, right? So if you look at it simplistically, if you control the primary care provider, either as an employee in states where that's possible, or you just have loyalty if that's not possible, that's a, that's a key issue. But I think there's some other things there as well. So, you know, like one of our uh, health systems has, um, you know, a strategy in, um, where they have ambulatory clinics in key communities, and a lot of health systems do that. 
where they're interested in having, you know, growing by having, you know, boots on the ground. And, you know, another podcast we did, I don't know, a year or two ago was talking about some of the partnerships that are happening out there, even trying to integrate urgent care chains, which may not be officially part of the health system, but doing partnerships so we gain control of the clients that way. And there's a lot of sort of hybrids with that. So I feel like that's a big deal. And we're going to talk about telehealth in a minute. But, you know, I, I really feel like today that the whole idea of healthcare consumerism is making us redefine the product. Like, what would the product be? Because right now, you know, from my standpoint, we have, um, you know, it's kind of like a bunch of cottage industries, right? You have the primary family doctor over here, the OB-GYN over there, the internist over there. There was no master plan. It just sort of all grew up organically. And then, of course, if you get into reimbursement and all the different things with healthcare, you'd say, would you design the system like this if you had a blank slate, right? Where everybody's independent, there's no coordination. And the answer would probably no. <laughs> you, know, you, would, you would design it differently. And so right. I think the people are looking more for that whole integrated health system. I'll tell you a sample size of one for myself. And uh, my internists may be listening. But uh, something I remark on lately is, you know, I needed a script that had been renewed for, or I hadn't seen him for a while because of COVID. I needed a script. It was something minor uh, for a skin thing. And he said, well, you're going to have to get your physical before I can give that. So I just went to Teladoc and got my script. <laughs> so not that I don't want to get a physical and not that I don't like my primary care doctor, but I think that's important though that consumers are empowered today. And, you know, it's, it's important to have, if you're looking at it like a health system, to think of a fully, you know, integrated a system which you have, you know, primary care, boots on the ground with, you know, family practice or whatever. You've got urgent care as part of the mix. Um, by the way, John, I don't know if you know this, but I once uh, did the math. If you're looking at nine to five, you're only open to nine to five for a, a normal doctor's office, you're closed 74% of the time. <laughs> so, you know, mm -hmm. when do kids get sick? They never get sick 75, you know, during that, that nine to five, they get sick at other times. So I, I think that's really important. And I think they're looking at it more strategically. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, the more locations is more presence. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that too. Do you, is that your experience as well? And when you're talking to CEOs and other decision makers of health systems, you know, what kinds of things are they sharing with you? Yeah, so this notion of, of consumerism, when I went to uh, grad school the first time around, this is like, feels like decades ago, uh, early 90s. I was working in a full-time, actually, in, in a, for a boutique market research firm, and their specialty was patient satisfaction research. So this is like before, you know, the hospital compare and things like that. And, and this notion of patient satisfaction kind of dominated the conversation for years and years. And it's even, you know... How happy the patients are that's that's part of the scores but it's kind of shifted from patient satisfaction to consumers driving you know that that exactly what you're talking about the expectation that you know you're like forget about it I'm not gonna yeah I'll come in for my physical or get my labs when I have time but right now I've just got the skin problem and I know what it is and I've got to get it taken care of and so for 20 bucks or whatever you paid I'm gonna go to Teladoc and, and that's what people do. And it's the same to your point about, about nine to five. Um, my kids, I have um, uh, four kids. They're all kind of older and grown. Uh, but, you know, when they're little, 
there, always one of them had something going on and they all had pediatricians. But the reality is, is trying to get them in to see the pediatrician, it was always a hassle. And so at some point, I started just taking them to the CVS because that's what was most convenient. That's what was gonna, where I was gonna get taken care of and have my kids seen that same, that same day. And uh, it could have been six o'clock at night, right? Could yep. have been seven o'clock at night, not, not nine to five. Yep, and that, that's total disruption in the marketplace. And I feel like um, the systems are, you know, seem to be getting smarter and smarter at this, and they'd rather be the disruptor than the disruptee, right? right. So I think that's going to be long term, um, expanding the net into more locations, more. And also another quick thing, if you think about it from a marketing standpoint, look at the economies of scale. If you truly have um, multiple locations in the community. They're all profitable. When you start thinking about marketing, you start thinking about referral patterns. Um, it's more you're spreading your cost out or, and you're, you know, you're more likely to get people to respond to marketing and you're spreading your costs out over multiple locations. So there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that's really the wave of the future, this whole fully integrated, you know, care. And then, you know, the, we talk about one of our other hospitals is, you know, clinically integrated network where we try to go out to other providers, right? Even providers like nursing homes. And that's still hard to do. Uh, sometimes obviously it's built where it's all the same system. Other times they're trying to cooperate, but clearly the consumers want that, right? So they want to have uh, access to medical records. Again, it's like, you know, here with, with me, um, to be able to have my uh, primary care of access to my telehealth appointment, which I would have gladly done through him if he'd offered it. So I just feel like that's the way of the future. Let's talk about something else that came up. Well, you know, virtual care is kind of, we just touched upon that. There's a lot to talk about today, but um, you know, I thought it was really interesting, some of your data. I'm gonna jump to maybe midway through your um, uh, PDF, which by the way, will be available on the website for everybody. I'll send it to my subscriber list, but the, um, um, virtual health is more than just, um, you know, telehealth or video visits. And, you know, technically telemedicine is like teledoc where you're seeing a doctor and telehealth is more broad, uh, at least the definitions I've seen where you're including um, remote monitoring, for example. And, um, mm -hmm. some, and something else I thought was really interesting that you actually brought it up in your report was drive up in vehicle services. Let's talk about that, either from your report, you know, some of the findings you found from the report and also any comments on any of those particular areas. Yeah, so I think, so in the very beginning, obviously we had this big boom in telemedicine in the beginning of COVID, I should say, um, and, and systems were standing up, you know, Zoom systems <laughs> where they didn't have anything previously, or maybe they had a, kind of a shell of a telemedicine program that they were uh, really kind of forced to increase. And one of the things that we've seen is what what is kind of stayed at a very high level is telebehavioral health, um, whereas, you know, maybe 20%, 25% of uh, primary care visits and 10 to 15% of specialty care visits have some virtual component. But my sense is, and this is really from talking to people uh, in, in the last quarter, is there's almost like this expanded definition of thinking about telemedicine to um, maybe it's more that telehealth to home health care, um, remote monitoring. In other words, it's like the whole digital platform and how can we use technology to um, either replace um, or supplement 
the way that we typically deliver care. So it's almost like a mind shift that I see happening where it's not just, you know, an, an, an iPad, let's say used in the hospital or a typical Zoom call or even you know, regular telehealth visit, but all of these other components of the digital architecture being being integrated and being seen as as uh, as increasingly valuable. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, for sure. And one thing that's funny, just that nobody talks about this, but um, during COVID, um, I had some symptoms. I knew I didn't have COVID, but I wanted to be sure, right? So uh, I went to get tested at a local urgent care. And this particular one is um, uh, affiliated with Hope, which is a big provider in our area. And they, you know, free plug to Hope over here. It was really seamless. It was easy. You know, I texted them. Um, I think when I drove up, I had either a QR code or a number to let them know I was there. They texted me back. They called me um, and they came out and actually did a test. But what was unique about it was and then afterwards, they did a great job with the reputation management platform uh, that asked me the, um, the right, you know, the whole, um, uh, you know, would you refer friends or family question. And uh, it was just very seamless. But what, I, what had occurred to me as I was sitting there, though, is why would I go, let's say, I have, you know, past COVID, do I really want to go in when I need to be seen by a human? Do I really want to go in during cold and flu season and be around a bunch of other sick humans? So I feel like it'll be really interesting to see if that, uh, that continues. Because for an urgent care, even with the in-person visit, I love not waiting in a waiting room. And you mentioned your kids, my pediatrician, when they were little, it was the same thing. You walk into a room, and they're all like, you know, snotty noses. <laughs> and you think, oh, man, it wasn't bad enough. And they have, they, they call it the sick room. So all the sick kids are in the same room. So, yep. which for understandable reasons. But, you know, from your discussions with different people, do you see more of that kind of thing happen? Or uh, do you see a lot of, whether it's that particular issue or just um, the CEOs you're talking to, do you feel like there's an excitement to add these kinds of very consumer friendly and really um, disease prevention measures. So I think it's, they're looking at it through a different lens as we've gone through COVID, right? Because consumerism was, was here prior to COVID and with health systems thinking about, you know, what is it, right, right place, right care, right time, that kind of thing, making sure that, uh, that they're not just having satisfied patients, but allowing them to be um, a little bit in the driver's seat. So, but where things have changed is they've realized that, you know, there may be a necessity moving forward to be able to, you know, use these technologies to be able to see patients. And, and you know, the whole, like you said, reputation management, everything wrapped into one. My story around this is my primary care doc, um, his, he, he had this thing wired from the beginning. And so doing testing, uh, the whole thing in the parking lot, the texting, exactly how you described it. Um, and he's a solo guy with a couple of NPs. And I had a couple of telemedicine visits with him. It was seamless through Zoom. I didn't have to wait. So it's not just, I guess my point is, I don't know how many of the smaller practices have been successful at this. I just know my end of one that my doc is doing a terrific job. The one thing that, that I will point out that I'm sure we would have gotten to anyway is that this is only going to last as long as reimbursement rates 
are, are close to being the same, right? I yep. mean, as reimbursement rates fall, and we actually asked this question, um, in fact, last time, uh, so in the October survey, we asked us to get give us a specific number, like what percentage? And on average, they said, you know, if we could probably go down to about 60% reimbursement where we'd still see the value in doing telehealth, but anything below that would be problematic. And so, and we're asking them now what's going on with reimbursement rates. They're telling us that at least a good portion of them are telling us that reimbursement rates are declining across payers. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. And I think we talked about this in our last conversation. It's frustrating. Like, why would you not reimburse the same? Is it that's, is it the, the whole like time and effort mentality? Like if the outcomes, if what you're looking for is better outcomes and you're looking for satisfied patients or patients in the driver's seat, why would you consider a telemedicine visit any less than being in person? For sure. And it's interesting. The, um, um, We've talked in this podcast with uh, what I did for you as well as others over the year. Of, you know, number one, the big the big issues were prior to COVID with telehealth is number one was just the technology. Nobody had to know how to do it. Um, the doctors didn't want to do it. They assumed patients didn't want to do it, which was a faulty hypothesis. Um, number right. two, um, it was certainly the HIPAA concerns. And number three, it's always reimbursement, right? It's a follow the money. It's always reimbursement. And so we talked about, you know, how in the past about, you know, how quickly these walls fell, right, during COVID. And so my premise for even back then was that, you know, the world will be changed forever. And you're exactly right. The fear of reimbursement is really real. And so I did a podcast recently with, or a webinar rather, with MEND, which is a, te- a leading telehealth company, and I uh, did it in conjunction with Matt McGride, the CEO. And it was interesting because I asked Matt about this when we were preparing for his webinar because he's closer to this. I mean, he's you know, it's a telehealth software company, and his comment was that surprisingly, um, you know, it's it's always an issue just like you described. But the one thing is you have to remember you get a vote too, so you can negotiate with your payers. And so, especially larger providers, and at least in his experience, have had some success with negotiating and pushing back. So I think that's really interesting because for sure, what is, is it just because, you know, we're operationally better and we're delivering better care. You're going to get, you're going to disincent us to do that. And again, I feel like you've got the consumers who also have a vote, right? They like telehealth. This isn't going to go away. It just isn't. And, you know, once you've experienced it, and I've talked about this on the last, on previous podcasts as well, where, you know, I have many anecdotes where, oh my gosh, I could have trudged down to Newport Beach and spent 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back, waiting in a lobby with sick people, and instead I got it all done, you know, from my desk. It's just faster. And so I feel like um, the reimbursement issue is for sure an area of concern, and we'll have to see where that goes, but I really do think the providers, especially larger ones, will be in a position to push back. Another comment I thought just wanted to um, a little bit off what we had agreed to, but your individual provider, I thought that was fascinating because that's my experience too. You know, when we started off years ago, we worked with a lot of, you know, um, smaller providers as well as the bigger ones. These days we work with mostly larger ones. But, you know, I see this all the time where the individual providers, some of them are a lot more marketing savvy than others, right? And so they have their own little business and they, it sounds like your doc did a great job at that. And, you know, like right now, some of the things that I've been sort of making the call out to, 
doctors everywhere is, look, you can do this stuff inexpensively and also help promote better healthcare by offering these kinds of things or promoting better healthcare. By using social media and email and communicating with your patients, you know, you can help with the vaccine resistance problem. I mean, there's just a lot that individual doctors can do. Um, um, I want to change gears a little bit here and talk about uh, one of these that came up in your circuit was burnout. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, so we think about the quadruple aim, right? So that, that, that fourth leg of the stool and having joy in work. And so COVID really put a damper <laughs> on, on that uh, last leg of the, uh, the quadruple aim. I mean, people were, they were burned out and stressed before, but then all you had to do is look on the, you know, the nightly news back in March, April, May, or even over the Thanksgiving holiday and you know people have been pushed to the brink nurses are uh, nurses and doctors are retiring uh, they're getting out of it and so what we're hearing from health system executives is there's been a renewed push for these kinds of um, assistance programs and really a, a focus on quality of work to kind of stabilize their docs and their nurses who've been stressed for over a year now uh, obviously there are it depends on where you are. You know, you're, you're New York City, you're big cities in California, um, Houston, Dallas. I mean, there are pockets where they got hit hardest. I've talked to some people in more in the remote areas that they're like, oh, we didn't really see much COVID. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, because you're in the middle of nowhere and you're 300 miles from the, the next uh, city. And good for you, by the way, that you didn't have to go through that. But um, yeah, really a renewed interest in talking about it, even in terms of their strategic priorities. Like we've got to really focus on our employees, that they've all been stressed, they've all been knocked, you know, not just in, in hospitals. I mean, how many other industries were uh, upended by COVID over the last year to 18 months? Um, so you know, I, I track that Medscape study that they do every year on physician burnout. And it, to me, it just feels like it's getting worse and worse. I haven't seen the one from, from 2020, but uh, what has been your experience with, with provider burnout? You know, it's funny, when I, with, uh, when I work with administrators at hospitals and you know, CEOs, they definitely talk about it. And I think it does depend a lot on the location. Some, it's a real problem. But I think what's interesting too is the broader issue that you mentioned so I'm noting to my, even my employees, we went virtual, you know, we did what we thought we needed to for public health. We went virtual um, really throughout the pandemic. And now I'm finding most of my employees don't want to go back. But the um, uh, interesting thing is I feel like, um, you know, people got used to a new way of life that we work with addiction centers and we know that, you know, addiction is way up. Um, we work with uh, the behavioral health because we have so much, um, you know, SEO sort of uh, reputation online. We get calls from uh, telehealth providers in the mental health field, like you alluded to earlier, all the time. Um, so there's definitely an increased openness to behavioral health and stress management through, you know, first of all, the stigma is um, far, far less than it ever has been to admitting that you have mental health issues. Telehealth is out there. Um, I even remarked to, you know, I brought up my employees a minute ago, I talked to them about you know, people just seem to be nicer lately <laughs> that, you know, you can see people on the street without masks outside in open air, you know, socially. We're in California, so it's still pretty conservative here in terms of, or pretty, I should say safe to use a better word, 
people are very careful. And um, the uh, but people are smiling more. So I think we've all been through a lot. I think healthcare providers have the brunt of it. And so they're at the, t at the point of the spear. But I think everybody um, just went through, you know, PTSD will probably come back out of this. And we just sort of all navigate it. For sure, I think it's an issue. I think that um, in a field where you know, there were already doctor shortages, um, it's um, disturbing. And you know, you have doctors that already were going to concierge practice model and kind of opting out of the traditional health system. That's of course a little scary, who's gonna take care of this increasing population. Um, so speaking of the population, another thing that you've covered, which I thought was really intriguing was population health. So, and we talked a little bit earlier about, we were kind of jumping around from our agenda today, but we talked earlier about the role of health systems in the community, and we talked about how to deliver care. But I think population health was interesting. Some of the data you had in your report, I was, it, there seems to be a ton of interest on that at the health level system, or the health system level. Yeah, and, and also, Stuart, that's something that I think predated COVID. I don't think, I know it, it uh, predated COVID. We've been tracking population health initiatives at the health system level for several years now. Um, but it's also one of those things that, you know, what, is it, what does population health really mean? And I remember having this discussion with somebody on Healthcare Rounds on our podcast. Um, it's like, it's, it's a term that is used so frequently that, you know, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about managing um, diabetics or patients with a specific disease? Or are we focused on age groups? Or as we found in our survey, um, a massive increase over time in social determinants of health um, and health disparities. Because we know that you know, black and brown people, as well as those of lower socioeconomic status, fared worse during COVID. Um, you know, higher hospital admission rates, higher death rates. And so one of the things, and I wish I had the stats here in front of me to, to, to show you the increase, but a massive increase from um, May of last year until April of this year and those that are really focusing in on health disparities as a key strategic priority of the organization. Yep, for sure. In fact, I went and just found it. <laughs> so 72% uh, of survey respondents indicated an increase on health disparities. And that totally makes sense. I think that uh, this issue has been brought to the news for sure. And um, we're all aware of it. And I think it's when it's, you know, lives, people are notably dying or you know, getting hospitalized at you know, disproportionate rates, it just underscores the problem. It's been there all along, right? People are now aware mm -hmm. of it. So as we swing toward the end here, just another um, question or two. The, um, I, one of the things that um, you know, we talked about, and I think it's in your report as well, talking about mergers, acquisitions, any comments on that, either from within your data or just in general what you're seeing? Acquisitions, adding sites of care, will they buy me, squeeze me out? Like any thoughts from that? Yeah, well, so that goes back to the the growth imperative, right? And so, um, looking to expand either by expanding their network or acquiring practices, um, that's something that we heard a lot of recently. I will say that I would have thought that by now, that these health systems that there would have been a lot more consolidation than we've seen. You know, it's kind of been this steady rate um, of, of mergers and acquisitions. But I thought due to the financial picture of some of these organizations that that would have 
increased substantially the M&A activity, and I haven't really seen that. Have, have you? You know, so the, the M&A has been happening um, for a long time, right? And I forget, I just was reading some stats on the number of hospitals that have changed their name. I don't have that at my fingertips, but it's a lot. And we have a database of all the hospitals and health systems, and there's tremendous change there. Also, um, in our world, we do a lot with multi-location um, healthcare practices providers on the dental side, DSOs, dental service organizations, and on the practice side, often called PPMs. And for sure, they are on that level growing. Um, we see in really there's various fields that are hot. So like addiction, autism, uh, women's health, dermatology, um, you know, we have clients, multi-location, gastroenterology, um, skilled nursing. So there's a ton of that. I feel like the, um, you know, a lot of the, um, these kinds of businesses are, you know, working to um, create exit plans because a lot of the doctors may be baby boomers and they're on their way out. They're ready to retire. So right. definitely an increase in that. And it'll be very interesting to see how that um, in our uh, in the long term impacts healthcare because uh, and we'll probably see more contracting. You know, a lot of times these practices that we're seeing at least um, are focused on things like um, uh, revenue cycle management. Um, better operations, better sourcing, reducing costs, um, you know, figuring out ethically how to promote um, um, the business. You know, we often get involved in, you know, help them figure out how to get more patients or to grow various service lines. So that's a big deal. But it'll be really interesting to see if they start doing, and they do it now, but more partnerships with health systems. Again, moving toward an integrated model that just, you know, makes sense. And, um, I know for sure some of those multi-location practices, um, like one of my favorite ones is a big oncology one uh, that we worked with for years. They got together initially to be able to contract um, because they can provide chemotherapy uh, at the practice level far more affordably than a hospital can due to the way reimbursement works in that world. And that while that's been successful, it hasn't been as successful they would expect. So it still feels like there's jockeying, you know, in terms of position and figuring out how this all fits together. I mean, healthcare is incredibly complex. And as I mentioned earlier, nobody would design it with all these individual entities, right? Right. <laughs> From scratch. But, you know, there's a lot of interest there to keep things the way they are. So it's the market is moving, whether people like it or not, but it's definitely not seamless for sure. Any other uh, big picture, you know, findings or anything else from your survey you think we should talk about or any other trends you think are interesting? We've covered a lot today. I know I, I, I wore you out, I'm sure, but yeah. I can talk with you for a long time. No, we've covered a lot. And what's been on my mind lately is, is uh, you know, from a research perspective, you know, where do we, where do we take this quarterly study from here? You know, as we kind of, we hope, move away from COVID. Um, what are the kinds of things that we're going to want to be tracking for the future? Is it this? Is it the M&A activity? Is it the um, you know increase in in alliances and partnerships or direct contracting? You know what is what is that? And I'm I'm not exactly sure. Maybe we could uh, brainstorm on that <laughs> separately. I'm yeah, sure that you'd have do that. Yeah. many ideas for our next study that's going to be uh, conducted in July. I would love to do that, John. You know, it's funny. I, I love talking to you because our worlds are, you know, kind of overlapping circles, right? We have some things right. that are very different, but we have some area in the middle there, which is 
um, very much um, uh, intriguing uh, play. And I love this kind of stuff. It's just, for me, it's fun. Hey, and I forgot to give you, why don't I give you a commercial? Um, tell us, um, you know, like, uh, you know, who you're for and if they, for your podcast and your blog and everything else so people can find you online. I'll have it posted, but just for the people that are listening only. Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn um, or jm at darwinresearch.com. You can find us at darwinresearch.com. And Healthcare Rounds, our podcast, is really available wherever you get your podcasts. I think we're, we're out on every channel. Excellent. How fun. Hey, um, it's been great talking to you. I knew it would be. See, I told you it would be. <laughs> you too, Stuart. I always enjoy our conversations. We, go, we, we have uh, these kinds of tangential talks. It seems like any time that we get on the phone, and now we just manage to get it on a podcast. <laughs> Excellent. All right, cool. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening.